This episode of Untold is with meetings and incentive sensation, Mr. Patrick Delaney. Patrick is a much admired and established executive who's been at the forefront of the travel industry for many decades. We follow Patrick's career from being thrown through a plain glass window when managing a Dublin coffee dock through to selling the Emerald Isle stateside, initially in St. Louis, before securing a transfer to the Big Apple, where he spent many a year. With his natural storytelling, Patrick regales us with tales from his career post his return to Ireland, which have included running a classical festival at Adair Manor and establishing with Patrick Galligan a number of Ireland's most successful destination management companies, the very last being Ovation, which was sold to MCI. Patrick is now managing partner of Sol Nua, who provide the very best marketing, strategy, and training for destinations around the globe. Enjoy Untold with Patrick Delaney. Patrick, thank you so much for your time today. It's really appreciated. If we go back to early career, can you tell us a little bit about what inspired you to, to go into hospitality management and study it? What were some of your early life catalysts that led, led you towards the industry? Well, I'd love to have a brilliant uh, story to tell you, Garrett, that, that you know, I was inspired by an innate desire to you know, have a career in this wonderful industry, I actually fell in completely by default. Uh, and um, I actually started my career or, or started my journey on life wanting to be a scientist like my brother. You know, I don't know if you ever had a smart brother, but I went to a school, the same school as my brother and everybody kept referring to, are you really Rory's brother? You know, they were calling it surprise because he was the smart one in the family. Um, and uh, so I decided that I better follow him. But but obviously the intelligent quotient wasn't the same. He'd used up all the, the Delaney intelligence and uh, it soon became apparent that my career in, in, in science might be limited. And uh, my brother, who I'm very, very close to and I, and I love and, and we spend a lot of time talking to each other, he suggested, why don't you try... Um, why don't you try hospitality? You might be good at that. So he gets he gets the benefit. And then I realized that, you know, hospitality had lots of girls associated with that career. And it seems like a good deal. So unfortunately, I fell into catering and into hospitality. So I started off doing a hotel management um, uh, degree. Uh, in fact, I changed. I initially wanted to be a chef and I was awful at that as well. So maybe maybe the line in my career has been failure has pushed me into other other areas. Very good. And post hospitality or sorry, post graduation. Yeah. Did, did you initially have a number of jobs in Ireland before you head, headed stateside? Or was that one of the first moves you no, made? No, no, no. Well, you know, once once I decided to go into hotel management and, and in all great tradition of hotel management training, you know, you're obviously encouraged to to take practical 
um, take up practical roles. So I was worked as a chef in in the Chateau Champlain Montreal. I worked for CP Hotels then in general in Canada. And then I went to work for an Irish hotel group called Jury's Hotel Group, which were the largest group and really very progressive hotel group. Within there, I worked front office manager. I was actually coffee dock manager. And let me tell you about Coffee Dock in, in Ireland. And, and I think this is <laughs> this is one of my really big learnings. Um, in Ireland in, in the in the 70s and late 70s, there was only one all night um, eating establishment. And that was Jury's Coffee Dock, which they came up with this idea, obviously, from the States. And this is where the great and the good came to sober up. So you had the judges and you had the actors and you had the various other stratas of society. And it was fascinating. And I was the coffee doc manager. And of course, at a, uh, being a manager, I thought, you know, I had a striped trousers. I got the black jacket. I got a big bunch of keys and I was set loose. And, you know, everybody left at 11 o'clock. And then, the, you know, the, all the senior managers, the real managers left. And I was left running this establishment. And, you know, very quickly, I become to realize that, you know, you're manager, you're only as good as the team you're with. And, you know, the, the waitresses in this, um, in this venue, in the, in the, in the hotel, they, these were women, they weren't girls, they were women, and they saw They'd seen life and they could handle any situation. So if they actually ever called you to intervene, you know, you better pay attention. I didn't understand that. And probably three weeks into the job, I got a call saying, you know, I wasn't, I was off somewhere else in the hotel. You better come down. There's a problem in the coffee dock. And I marched down with great confidence with my black suit and my keys jingling. And I just went over and the, the setup in the restaurant was small booths. And I went over to the offending booth and I said, I'm the." And at that stage, the person sitting in the booth picked me up and threw me through, threw me through a plate glass window, right? <laughs> so I, I'd never had, I'd never even a chance to give them my full CV. And <laughs> after that was a great lesson. And I, it was always, always ask first, think before you act, and also show respect for people who know more than you. And I've, I felt that's been very useful in life. So in future times, I'd always check with the team what situation is this? How should I handle it? And of course, in future, um, future con uh, conflict situations, I gather all the night porters behind me, and then I'd approach at a distance to the offending group that were singing or jumping up and down, and I'd say, pay attention, or those guys behind me, they'll put manners on you. So uh, it was a, a very good, you know, I recommend everybody to be a waiter or to work work in hospitality and restaurants. It's a very good education. So I, I, I had had a quite, um, quite a, an interesting career in the hotel side before I, I went to the US. And in fact, when I went to the US, um, I, I was very happy. I was fortunate enough to work for the Irish tourist board. I just joined what was then board Falta. And because my background was basically in operations, I was working as a hotel inspector, the dreaded hotel inspector. So, you know, but I was very happy. I was had a great destination within Ireland, Kerry region, which was, you know, one of the premier regions. And I really enjoyed going down there. And, and I was giving, the, giving that region the benefit of my, my knowledge. And uh, there was a job going in the United States, which I had no intention of going for because it was in marketing and, and sales. And I remember uh, my the head of the US operation came to Ireland and uh, uh, my current boss at that stage said to me, you know, 
you have no chance of getting this job. It's going to somebody else. But, you know, apply. You, you, you need to make up the numbers. And I went, that's grand. So I went into the interview and I started off the interview by attacking the interviewer by saying, you never remember my name. We've met on a number of occasions. It's really quite disconcerting because I didn't really care. I knew I wasn't getting the job. And of course, when you don't want something, uh, I owe that man, Donald McSullivan. Um, uh, the, uh, he was a much better person than me. He was able to get over my cheekiness and he gave me the job. And off I went to the US. So uh, what age would you have been heading over to New York to, to head up Tourism Island? Now, I wasn't heading up at that stage. No, I was, I was, uh, I couldn't probably have bought a clock. I had that much authority. Um, I was probably in my late 20s, uh, late 20s, beginning of, um, so I went to work, actually. Um, this is the situation. There were four people. Ireland was expanding. It was a time when, when there was really, you know, the great interest in tourism and, 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 and the destination was pushing out a lot you know, to get that American, you know, get the American dollar in. And there were three other people went. One went to LA and everybody said, this is, this is Tom, he's going to LA, Hollywood. And this is Carberry, he's going to Washington, you know, the capital. And this is Ken, he's going to Chicago, that beating heart of the Irish, you know, and the great city. This is Patrick Delaney, he's going to St. Louis. And people used to break out, laugh, because they think, bloody hell, you know, I was, I, I, you know, why St. Louis? Well, why St. Louis was because it was in the Central America and TWA had, a, had their headquarters there. And, you know, TWA was the, was the, new, was the new airline for, for Ireland. Uh, I was there to kind of help to kind of stimulate the, you know, support the, the local travel uh, community. And I love St. Louis. St. Louis, let me tell you, St. Louis is a brilliant destination, has an awful bad reputation. And I, you know, I, we were expecting a baby and I shocked my wife enough by telling her, hey, listen, I've got that job. So we had our first child in St. Louis, but I only lasted in St. Louis a, a year because unfortunately my, my boss, I called him after six months and I said, hey, Donald, you know, I've been here I've been really working hard trying to learn about this sales and marketing thing. And I've been kind of out there talking to the travel agents. When are you coming? to uh, you know, see how I'm doing. And all I can still hear him laughing because he knew the East Coast, he knew the West Coast and anything in the middle you know, was not somewhere that he wanted to go. And he said, it's too warm. So I kept going backwards and forwards to New York. And I think I used up all my budget that way. So I eventually moved to New York, worked then for another great character um, called Brian Stack, who was the, you know, the original uh, person who knew all about incentive travel and under Brian's tutelage then, uh, when he left, I took over his job. And then actually, I think I got rid of a lot of people. And then after that, I took over the marketing and sales job. So um, it, it, it was over a period of time, but a, a great opportunity, which uh, Dono McSullivan gave me the start. So, so you then lived and were based in Manhattan? Yeah. No, we, we worked in a, in a uh, we lived in a, in a place called Rye. Now, if you know New York, Rye is in Westchester. It's on the, the Metro North line. And, you know, there's Mamarnik, Connecticut, uh, uh, um, all, all of the stops. They always said, a lot of people lived in Rye who were Irish because they said we couldn't spell Mamarnik and that's why they put the Irish in Rye. But uh, that's where I lived. So it was about you know, a 40 minute commute outside of Manhattan, but a lovely place to live. And it's, uh, that's where Brian, Brian had, in, Brian was living there and I, I went to live there. It was quite a strong Irish community, but. Um, and then this, this era would have been Gordon Gecko and Wall Street. It, it was the, the really yeah. 
the 80s with bankers raised profile and and clearly from a sales and marketing perspective it would predate predate even fax machines to a degree right that would have come in what stage do fax machines <laughs> are you is that a leading question to make me even seem older all i can tell you is that i absolutely remember fax machines and i absolutely remember the fact that the 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 paper the the writing on the paper used to used to disappear it was very very difficult but you know we in ireland were always very progressive but yeah it was you know we were power dressing i was i learned you know how to 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 wear a really flashy tie and and to have a you know have a good watch and 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 you know not not something that i knew an awful lot about so it was a time of of uh, but it's a great time in in america i think the great thing about the united states and certainly for me coming from ireland and I, I genuinely you know i have four children and they were all born in the us i really felt it was a privilege to come to the us because you know there's a freedom um i i came from ireland my home which i love and and as you know you know the best rugby teams in the world come from ireland so it's a great place but maybe socially and uh you know economically we've come through hard times and going to the us there's a great freedom you know it was as an immigrant it's it's based on immigrants you know immigrant success and if you work and if you're uh, and if you're fortunate enough being Irish as well is no 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 disadvantage. You know, it was a great liberating. I learned an awful lot. I also learned, Gareth. You know, coming from Ireland, I love the cinema, and you know, we were never allowed to go to cinema during the day because it's kind of it's kind of dodgy if you said. But in America, what what did America give me? It gave me the ability to go to the cinema at any stage during the day and to be unashamed about it. I love going to the cinema, and also gave me a great love for orange juice. So I put those thing, things down to the U.S obviously a bit cheeky about the fax machine but really how how did the sales and marketing approach work then in terms of a, a typical week or your focus in terms of liaising and working with american companies trying because obviously ireland is a big place and the us is a big place how did you really target and, and really try and get some of your early successes yeah, and we were we were well structured because we had quite a good team uh, in the US, which were geographically placed, and we were also, I think, pretty experienced. I mean, Ireland has been welcoming welcoming guests, visitors, since you know the the year dot, but in particularly the you know in the mid nineteenth century. Um, so we have a lot of experience, and there's a lot of Irish people. So the first thing I think in in terms of Ireland. Uh, how we managed to be so so, so successful, and, and by the way, we is very definitely the word should be using here, is there was a very clear message and an understanding that if you emotionally connected with the customers, and at that stage, you know, in Ireland, we were very, very much targeting the the Irish American, the or, or the American, the US citizen and the Canadian who had at least if not a direct um, connection in terms of family with the US, but had a connection in terms of that, you know, positive feeling. So we very definitely played on the emotional side. And I think we were also learning about, you know, geographic dis distribution. And you've, re re you've said it yourself, Gareth. One of the illusions you think is America is one big amorphous lump. No, it's a very definitely, as is Europe, as is all, all continents, it's got its own particular characteristics. So we place team members who are able to back up the kind of the, the general marketing, but to establish those really deep relationships on the ground with the travel community uh, and with the airline community. And the biggest challenge in those days was to get across lift access, you know, and so Pan Am was there, they started it, TWA. We've always had up to recent times, 
real difficulty with getting access. We had Aer Lingus, but no big international carriers. Uh, so that was one of the, you know, I think that was the way in which we did it. We did it geographically, we did it emotionally, always the emotion. Emotion was really, really important. Um, uh, and I think we begin to understand, you know, in a very, very early stage of the use of data and, and understanding what worked and, and what didn't work. Excellent. And clearly, they're very strong links, as you, you mentioned there, between the US and, and Ireland. Um, and you've talked about cultivating some of those, those links. But if someone hasn't seen Boston, Chicago, New York on a St. Patrick's Day or on a Arthur's birthday or some of the clever marketing that's come from Guinness and other organizations, how would you describe that affinity between North America and Ireland and, and what sort of numbers would you say have heritage? Well, there's over 40 million people that claim they have heritage. Um, uh, in Ireland, and it's kind of a, a miracle if there's that many people in reality. But I think what Ireland has done really, really well is obviously um, it's 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 a gentle introduction to the rest of Europe. So one, we're English speaking of sorts, as you can hear. We we have a, an accent, and we've certainly have a strange way of speaking. We have our own our Gaelic language, but it you know it's English. Everybody speaks English in Ireland. So for the U.S. citizen. Um, you know, those either who, who, particularly those who haven't got Irish heritage, you know, they, they are, they are a very open, uh, an open nation, but they're also very nervous. So they're very conscious when they're out, when they're outside of their own environment. So Ireland is a really gentle way of getting into the rest of Europe. It's obviously very close. It's six hours from five, five hours flight from, from the East Coast. So if you actually analyze what those touch points are, you know, that sense of confidence, that sense of genuine warmth, that sense of there's enough to do here after you see the first sheep, you know, they, they, they were the kind of issues that we, I suppose, we built on uh, various campaigns. And as you rightly say, there's no country in the world has got St. Patrick's Day. So whether you're Irish or you think you're Irish, we always say, you know, there are two types of people in the world, those who were born in Ireland and those who wished were born in Ireland. And we, we certainly knew, knew how to play that one. Well, yeah, I, I, I was blown away the first time I was in Manhattan, how many Irish bars there were. And then I went to Boston. <laughs> and it, was, it, was, it was like Manhattan times 10. There were so many. Absolutely. Absolutely. And everything else. But um, yeah, it's incredible that the sheer numbers yeah, and 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 you know, again, you mentioned Arthur Guinness. I mean, those Irish bars, they, 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 they—that's a business in its own right, you know. So, although I have to tell you, I try to avoid Irish bars. I spent all my life going around. Everybody wants to bring me to an Irish bar. Actually, Garrett, you're old. You know, Singapore. One of you know, I remember when I went first to Singapore, and I was so excited, and I thought, oh, here I am. I'm going to be in raffles, and I'm going to be having my my sling, my Singapore sling. And then the very nice people who who, who I was making a presentation said, I know what you want to do. Let me bring you to Delaney's Irish bar. And I went, oh no, I, I want to go. I have enough Irish bars at home. I want real Irish bars. Um, but uh, so the Irish bars have a two, two way sword for me. Absolutely. I, yeah, I, I, can, I can imagine there, there are better bars than Irish bars in Singapore. <laughs> so if you, if you, I'll take you to the cocktail in Raffles now they, they've refurbished. But in, in terms of, itineraries and, and what you were really promoting what what tended to be the length of time you were recommending people to visit and what you know what what sorry where would people go essentially because again yeah the US is 
the more information and the, the more you can tailor an itinerary, the more better a picture someone can pick. And they don't take much time off, right? So they want to try and compress their schedule. Pack it in. Yeah. And at that stage, we still unfortunately had a lot of trouble in Northern Ireland. So the, the you know, in terms of the organization that I was immediately, um, you know, responsible for and working with, um, we were looking for the south of Ireland, right? And, you know, we had a fairly well worked out inverted triangle, if you can picture in your mind. So you're, you're either arriving in Dublin and, or Shannon or and then leaving the opposite destination because we had arrivals in Shannon and, and, and Dublin as the main entry points. And you were going from Dublin to, to Galway, which is on the west coast, and down south to Kerry to Cork and back across to Dublin. So if you could imagine that triangle, essentially that was the 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 um, the main uh, itinerary focus or, or the route. And then within that, you know, obviously you have you know those castles, the, the fantastic castles of Ashford and Dromoland and the Dare. You had key hotels like the Park. And in Killarney and Kenmare, and you'd got Dublin, you got the Shelburne. So you had I iconic touch points which people used out. So essentially, most itineraries always had the following elements. Quite often, they had some element of a, of a, of a castle somewhere in it, but they definitely had, you know, they had a stop off where you'd have an Irish pub night, you had a, you know, you had going to restaurants. Actually, one of the big discoveries for people when they came to Ireland still is a fact is that, you know, the traditional definition of Irish food was boil it for three hours and then we'd boil it again just to make sure it was cooked. So what happened with our big immigration, particularly, you know, coming in this era, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, when those Irish people came back, we realized two things. One, we had really good produce because we've, we've very good beef, we've very good fresh fish, we've good land. Uh, and maybe if we didn't cook it as much, if we didn't boil it as much, we actually might bring out the flavor. So there was, there has been, and has continued to be one of the features of Ireland is the is the growth in 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 our cuisine. So that was always a big surprise for North Americans, which we were able to exploit because you know the expectation was we'd always have fun, you know, plenty of drink, but the food wouldn't be that good, and it was really it was. And it continues to be really, really good. So they were the kind of elements that you always had in an itinerary. Obviously, um, you're based in Manhattan, living up in Westchester, right. or yeah. Tony Soprano country. How, <laughs> how did you and the family tend to spend weekends? Was, was it sport like Gaelic football? And was there an Irish community that you would spend time with? Yeah, there was a very strong um, uh, Irish community in, in in Rye, but also Tony Soprano. And then we're going into New Jersey, but we 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 were very lucky. In in I, I and my wife are uh, you know we really wanted to to be inserted in the Irish community, and we're very community very connected with that. But I also spent a lot of my time trying to avoid the Irish community because I was very conscious I was in the United States, and the United States is a melting pot. So I actually spent a lot of my time in Manhattan going in. We'd go in, we'd just walk around a little. You know, New York is, is one of my favorite cities of the, of, the, of, the, of the world because it's made up of neighborhoods. And, you know, genuinely each neighborhood, whether it's, you know, it might have a, 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 a Jewish community, a cultural background, it could have 
um, an African, a Caribbean. I really enjoyed, um, and we, we collectively enjoyed kind of going to those neighborhoods and, and, and just spending time walking around. New Yorkers are so engaging. You know, they have a bad reputation uh, in terms of, you know, people think they're rude, but they're not. You, if you just engage with them, you have, uh, there's one of them wanting to talk to me already. Isn't that amazing? That's my daughter who was born in the United States, actually. So I'll just ignore her there for a second. So, you know, we, we did obviously connect into the Irish community. We had our Gaelic football, you know. In those days, Gard, we didn't have online. And my mum, Lord of Mercy, used to send me the Irish paper out every week. So I was able to keep up to date on the rugby and the, and the, and the football at home. Um, so when I was in the United States, I tried to spend a lot of my time, um, you know, just enjoying and traveling. And then I have a brother who lived in the United States, so my smart brother, my doctor brother, uh, and I'd go down and visit him. He worked uh, uh, worked in for, for various large corporate US corporations, a very smart man, and he moved around the US. And I used to go regularly to visit him. Nick, if I had to put you on a spot, I know you're, you're typically selling Ireland, but if you're selling New York, where, where would be your favorite restaurant for a steak in New York? Oh, uh, Smith and Malensky's was what I really used to like. You know, I loved Smith and Malensky's, but you know, I loved about a lot of the restaurants. You know, there were real waiters. You know, men who you know, men. Sorry about that, ladies. Um, men, you know, wearing proper old style jackets, and uh, you could smell the cigar smoke. And uh, you know, it was it was pretty to test from driven environment. I have to say, is your name um, name on the board in Smith and Malensky's? Uh, <laughs> I might have been asked to be removed from Spit of Lenskis a number of times for breaking into song, which is what Irish people do when we relax and get happy. We think everybody wants to hear our songs and off we go. <laughs> and, and therein is a problem at a certain stage. But yeah, that was that was certainly a favorite haunt. <laughs> so and and then you move back obviously to Ireland and um you you mentioned some of the iconic Irish properties just now and Clearly, Adair Manor is one, and and you then took up the post of vice president of sales and marketing for Adair Manor. So, having gone from selling the whole of Ireland to then selling one iconic resort, how, how was the transition, and and what were some of your better times or most enjoyable times selling Adair Manor? That's it's a it's a great question. Well, we we at a certain stage, I said earlier on, I've. I have four children and um, at, a, at a certain stage talking to my wife, Mary, we decided we were, you know, 11 years in the US and it was, we were either going to stay or actually go go home. And and, and, and Mary's family, she's got 11 in her family. So the, it's a big family, it's a big draw. So we came home. I was very fortunate to meet a man called Tom Kane who owns their manor. And he, what he wanted was, he had this brilliant idea of running a, a, a music festival like um, Glyndebourne, uh, um, uh, a classical music festival. So he's looking for somebody to run that and then also to do the hotel. The hotel was quite, is, is, is quite small. It's a wonderful, intimate hotel, brilliant hotel. But, you know, I primarily came home to run this music festival, which, you know, and I remember saying to Tom, I, I don't know about music festivals. In fact, you know, I've certainly been to enough of them, but, you know, classical music festivals, I, I don't know, but it was a, it was a good, <laughs> It was a fast learning opportunity uh, for me, and we, you know, we lo we lost a lot of money in our first year. We we had uh, we brought in a, a tent, uh, a marquee, 
um, of, uh, was over 3,000 seater. So this is, Adair is situated in the southwest of Ireland in, in a beautiful um, heritage village, uh, which, you, which you know well. And uh, so it wouldn't have been the, uh, maybe the ideal location in terms of putting a festival, but Tom had the vision and, and thank God had the where for all to, to really invest. And, and I'm very appreciative that he supported me. And we, you know, we learned a lot. I remember the first night, first night we were opening with the 1812 overture. I want you to picture the scene. Here we are, small village in Ireland, the great and the good, they're washed. They're all turning up. We have the American ambassador, we have the, the uh, Russian ambassador um, all ready to kind of launch the, the event. And the Russian ambassador, as sometimes Russians can, can get tired and emotionally got diverted a little bit. And he was a little bit late, let's say, arriving. And we were late starting the, um, the, 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 the program. And I'm backstage now. We, you know, we've, a, on, you know, we've the Irish Army outside ready with the cannons. We have a hundred person choral group. We've New Jersey Symphony Orchestra, over a over hundred performers. And I'm thinking, and I'm, I'm so fearful of so many things can go wrong. Never been, you know, first time ever, big, 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 large outdoor event and everything is going well. I'm standing beside backstage with the, with the uh, orchestra manager and I'm saying to him, this is really actually working out. You know, <clears throat> the, the sludging machine hasn't made so much noise that we can hear it being, you know, right in the middle of the small, the quiet pieces and everybody's turned up and we actually got started, even if it was 20 minutes late, but you know, you can't start without the ambassadors all being present. He said, oh, that's, that's great, Patrick, but um, you know, we're now in service time. And I'm kind of going, eh, service time? Yeah, yeah, what service time? He said, well, we should check your contract. And I went, well, you know, here we are. <laughs> I'm not going to check the contract. What, what, does, what does that mean? He said, well, you know, we contracted so many hours. So, so many hours for performance, so many hours from rehearsal. And we're already used up all your time now. And I'm kind of going, no, 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 that doesn't work like that. Oh, he said, well, yes, it does. And I said, well, give it to me in money. What does that mean in money? He said, well, we're now at 75 grand extra. And I said, well, you know, let's cut out a bit. He said, you can't cut out a bit of, 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 of the 1812 overture. And I'm saying, well, I can't pay you. So it's gone, we're gonna to have to figure this out. So it was lots and lots of good experiences for me on, on riders and how that whole world works. But luckily enough, you know, by three years time, we, we had over 27,000 people. We got television rights and, you know, so it was, a, it was a really good, interesting experience. But that's on the festival. Adair, Adair is a brilliant hotel. And uh, the Canes had bought the hotel, as Irish-Americans they were, and um, had restored it to a really high standard. So it, it nearly sold itself. Um, although I did, uh, he, Tom had, uh, we had a, a model, um, a model, was actually was a very, very good idea, uh, which was came by default, because we had a, a model made, a, an architecture model made of the, of the, um, of the of the of the castle of the hotel, and I was in in his office one day, and I said, "Oh, I'll take that and I'll bring it around with me." Because most of those days, if you remember them, Garrett, we used to have flip books. Yeah. So you know, when you made your presentation, you and here's another picture, and I turned the flip book, and I thought, "No, no, I'll just bring this model with me. It's going to be much, much. It's much, much more effective." And it was brilliant, except it was awful to carry on a subway on a hot on a hot summer's day as I walked around the agents in in London trying to meet them. But uh, yeah, Adair is a great, a great property and I really, it really is a privilege to, to sell it. Would I be right, Patrick, that Tom bought the place sight unseen? Absolutely. I always tell him he bought the bar and he happened to have the hotel attached 
but that was his uh, that was Tom's vision you know he was uh, he was a man of action he was a fighter pilot from Vietnam and he was a big stockbroker uh, um, and yeah he he loved Adair and uh, just just bought it bought it sight and seen uh, so I'm, I'm delighted he did that I was um, to go to a dinner that he hosted in the long room and, and he regaled oh, yeah. regaled the story that you know he they'd bought it sight over and seen and then they'd flown over and he, he sort of realized how much money he'd have to invest to, to get it <laughs> imagined it to be and it was some astronomical <laughs> he, he, he took it in good good spirit he was sort of it was quite an amusing story yeah, and it's a true story himself and Judy his wife yeah they were they're quite as I'd say as I've often said to him fully developed personalities that's what they are <laughs> and, and an amazing almost 24-hour resident bar right where you could go downstairs post weddings and events and and everything else with yeah and again Garrett you know you remember those it's interesting and it's so like what we you know why Ireland works and it's because it's you know when people come and the same way as you know you have your big names in the festival and you had you know you, you've got a superbly high standard but it's that personal connection that makes the difference that's that's the x factor and Ireland has it in 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 luckily enough in a surplus and Adair certainly had it as well and and that that 24-hour bar you know where people just relaxed and, and they were themselves and sang and and uh, had good food and good wine and good gifts yeah no it's quite a quite a special place and that and obviously the being involved with events and having done the destination then you obviously were tremendously well placed to to go into the world of BMC which is to do with attention to detail, selling destinations, and from an incentive perspective, obviously um, you you started up o Ovation and and yourself with Patra, pa sorry Poreg as joint founders developed what was Ireland's number one luxury DMC. So, is it possible to talk about some of those times prior to the M MCI agreement? Yeah, and well, I I would have kept on with the festival, except Tom decided he didn't want to keep on with the festival, and I didn't, I couldn't get enough money to buy the thing. So, um, so again, I was motivated by failure to go into a new um, career choice, and we started off, um, in fact, with a company called Delaney Marketing Consultants. Now, Gart, you know that if you think about Delaney Mark DMC brilliant i mean just incredibly good marketing except no one got it except me porik and probably the the barman who was there at the time of its original thought so and, and we also cheekily called ourselves ireland's premier dmc and you know whereas i did know an awful lot about you know the united states and what customers wanted which i think is critical didn't know an awful lot about the dmc business so it was a bit cheeky to put it mildly but looking enough again, saved by having a great team of people around me, a lady called Joan Phillips joined us. And, you know, we were we were very, very fortunate and then got a lot of, you know, colleagues who are still, you know, who are all ex. You know, when I go to a function now, one of the good things about being old is you have all these colleagues who you work with over the years. And, and you know, we, we, we launched into the DMC business. And I think the key thing that we knew um, and I thought, well, since I'm very well known, I'll get the business anyway. And there's another lesson, Garrett, was, no, I didn't. Everybody knew um, knew me and they, you know, hopefully they liked me. But the question in their mind is, could I run an event? Because for an incentive, this is your best customers or your best uh, team, internal team. So you're not going to take a risk. So I had to prove 
prove the fact that not only could we talk the talk, we could actually deliver because the DMC is both. They're marketeers, but they're also operational excellence. Uh, and that was a that that took a year or so to kind of get. And I'm very again appreciative of people that trusted and gave us the first chance. And one of those first chances that I got actually came a bit from the um, incentives. I uh, came a bit from the festival side because I worked with Michael Flatley. Do you know who Michael Flatley is the Order. originator of? Yeah. So Michael had performed with the chieftains um, at the festival and. He wasn't my best friend by any means. Uh, you know, we knew each other just from that kind of, you know, that, that relationship. But we had the society, American Society of Travel Writers. And they were looking for something very, very different uh, as it came in as a quote. And I remember talking to Michael and who was trying to get the idea of Riverdance. You know, it was always his idea. And I remember saying, hey, listen, you know, I'm looking for entertainment. Would you be, could you come? Could you come along? Would you be interested in doing this? And we ran the event in Trinity. And I had this idea in my mind that, you know, in Trinity, it's a brilliant, I mean, it's a beautiful university like Oxford, fantastic grounds. You know, it's, it's been there, founded by Queen Elizabeth I forever. It's got a lovely long room, but I decided, you know, like Elizabethan theater, let's switch the whole thing around and let's do, you know, let's do the event uh, yeah, we'll have the dinner, but let's do the entertainment like an Elizabethan theatre with everybody looking down. And Michael Flatley then put on, you know, the genesis of, um, of, of Riverdance. And that was really, really helpful. So, again, fortunate to, 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 to be able to ride on the backs of, of people who are smarter and better than me. Well, that, that's an amazing story. But in terms of where you talk about could you do an event, I think what a lot of people don't necessarily realize unless they've worked in luxury hotels or on an incentive and with DMCs is the level of attention to detail that goes in. It's almost minute to minute what, what people are doing and the, the run order and the event order. It's, it, and when you're talking about incentives, like you said, and, and I remember on, on one that I attended in Ireland when it was train transfers and the pack, pack lunch and you know the, what was at the time the Four Seasons Dublin. Yeah. Absolutely everything is done for the guests. So if you've been on a leisure trip ever, and you're obviously used to carrying your own bags, but an incentive, the experience is so totally different that you have to have a, a DMC that, that really makes it a special event. Yeah, and your social guard, and I don't think DMCs are appreciated as much. It's, it's, you know, people, you're definitely going from your beer budget to your champagne budget. But the great thing that a DMC does is that they know intimately the destination. If they're a good DMC, they should know intimately what that corporation or, or company is trying to achieve. And they really mediate the, the mixing of the two with great detail. So as you rightly say, from the, th from the time they are, well, from before they arrive to the time they arrive, every single item is you know, anticipated. So what seems like a very casual event or something that's happened spontaneously will invariably be planned. And again, you know, with somebody like Porik as a, as a business partner, who's, you know, is a brilliant writer, is very creative, you know, uh, and, and a great team. We were very lucky that we did concentrate on detail. We also concentrated on speed. And that was another thing. Going back to your facts question, you know, in those early days, certainly, you know, one of the things that I did learn um, uh, uh, in the DMC side was 
getting back to people quickly was really important because particularly when they didn't know you. So if you're in quick, you have a chance to then play. So we used to send our proposals, you know, they'd come in and the RFPs would be responded by, we'd send them by FedEx. No one had done that before. So we sent it off in a, in a you know, we'd print it up and put it in a box and send it out. And that, that kind of made us a little bit different, but certainly speed was something that was important. And then you could work out the detail, but, um, that was, I suppose, one of the changes that we, we did bring into the industry. But uh, there were, you know, always Ireland is very fortunate to have great DMCs, mm -hmm. Super Travel, uh, Jerry Noble, uh, you know, uh, Kevin Shannon, um, you know, people who were really, really good that we learned an awful lot from and, and, and grew up uh, uh, based on, on their shoulders. That, that um, response that you said, sending proposals via FedEx and and thinking about how you stand out is something that I've been fortunate to be taught when I when I started at the Langham by Diana Banks and Kathleen uh -huh. just the speed of response but also standing out because if you're going to be getting 15 or 20 all of the same proposal you know it, it invariably if you are the first you can win business because there's no competition because you've got back on time and your competitors haven't haven't got their act together and and in 2000, 2021, based on my experience for estate agents or car hire or anything else, it, it's uh, it, it's it's not great customer service now. So no, it's it's still a lesson. And by you mentioned Lady Diana Banks, I mean what a, what a great legend, a true industry legend. Uh, I learned a lot from her as well. It's so basic, Garrett. I mean, you know, whatever chance, you have no chance if you don't get back. And, and for us, it was just a big, uh, I think it was part, it was in fairness, it was Boric's insight. Let's get back quickly and then let's talk to the people. And then we can, we, you know, that, that'll make us different. And, you know, because let's be honest, we're all more or less, you know, we have all the same set of tools, the same elements of the destination. It's how you put them together and how you interpret uh, you know, what's available in terms of the assets and how you interpret the needs of the customer. But none of that comes into play if you have it, if you're not, if you, if you don't get it back quickly, because then you're, you're not even included in the, in the potential for getting the business. Now, I, uh, also, I, I, I haven't done trade shows for a number of years, but what, what I used to do would be to mail a thank you letter, having met somebody at a trade show, because I knew that they'd be going back into the office to maybe 50 to 100 emails because it's easy to pump out a generic email for for that number but if you do a letter and a mail merge it, it's not so much more difficult but they they will at least remember you when you've got an inquiry because rather than being a a pile of in a pile of emails they've actually received a a physical mail so they'd say oh you you're the guy that sent me a a letter or whatever it is and it's it only took a little bit more work but nobody else had done it absolutely guard and and i my time went one one more but i always send you know a physical i used to send and still do write now my writing is appalling it's absolutely appalling and invariably i get messages back from people saying i got your letter or i got your card i have no idea what's on it but thank you so much because you don't get those anymore, you know, no one. And as you rightly say, you're getting something with a stamp and an envelope with a stamping on. Oh, that's very tactile. That does make you stand out. And if you awful writing as well, it's, it's a big advantage. So um, if you ever get a card from me, you know, it's best wishes and it's all nice thoughts. Don't yeah. worry about what, what it actually means. There's a, there's a behavioral scientist, uh, Rory Sutherland, who works for Ogilvy, and he talks a lot about signaling. And okay. 
they did campaigns historically with with FedEx and he said well the how the message is conveyed can often be as important as what the message is so is that if you think about your wedding you don't email people an invitation to your wedding right you've got nice invitations that you've created the envelopes have been personalized he said if I get an email to a wedding I don't think it will be a I think it will be a cash bar so I don't bother going yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice invitation and it's in an envelope then I'll obviously make a point of going Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's personal. It's all personal. Ultimately, I, mean, I always say it's not about H to H. It's, or, it's not about B to B, not a business business, but H to H, human to human. Yeah. And you, you've been incredibly active all throughout your career with, you just were doing an ICA webinar before our call. You're obviously an active member of SITE and have attended EIBTM and IMEX and with regards to these associations and obviously trade shows, can you give a little thought as to why they're so important in the incentive market and why they do have such, I believe, a strong future? And But because you do hear a lot of naysayers that have said, oh, with the advent of internet and everything else, I don't need to spend three days in Frankfurt or I don't need to be a member of this. Can you just talk about some of the, the virtues of membership? Yeah, well, I think the virtues of membership, I can't extol the virtues of membership of, of these trades organizations from ICA to SITE to PCMA to MPI, um, because we're in a global business. And no matter how, you know, how well I, I think I'm reading and, I'm, you know, I, I live in an island off an island off Europe. But we all live in our own smaller communities. So the first thing a, 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 an association gives you is it gives you access to knowledge, which is, you know, with knowledge, then you can decide what's appropriate for you. It gives you access to reassurance, community, and community is so important because I don't know about you and Gareth, there have been times when I, you know, I've been really low. You know, I've just felt, oh my God, I just can't. You're starting off the business. I've reinvented myself, you know, three or four times, you know, and, and starting off is difficult, you know, no matter how confident you think you are, and then you get the knocks and everything doesn't always turn out like it is in the brochure. So, and you need to have friends and you need, and as I said, I've been particularly personally lucky because I have a brilliant business partner for over 36 years, a best friend, Porrick Gilligan. So I've been very lucky in that respect. But, you know, knowing that I have now community out there so I can pick up the phone and say, Garrett, what's the story? Can you explain to me how this marketplace works? Can you tell me how, you know, how do I write commission? Personal friendships that have built over the years, um, you know, our, our, our own, our own is a good example of it. So, you know, the associations give you that access to that knowledge, but give you access to the wider community. In terms of a trade show, and you know, a very good friend of mine, the Lord of Mercy, and Paul Flackett, a, a brilliant man like Ray Bloom, who started off the, you know, the IMEX shows, um, you know, Paul, Paul was was always, you know, a great proponent of, you know, not limiting your view of a trade show. So it absolutely is a marketplace. But if you only go for the marketplace, you're leaving so much on the table. And in fact, I was talking to, to Karina and, and Ray recently about this whole point about, you know, it's a marketplace, but it's much more. So it's a chance to get knowledge, it's a chance to reconnect with existing customers, it's a chance to find new customers. And it's also an amazing opportunity to collide serendipitously if you're open to new opportunities. And that opportunity could be new business, it could be a new idea, it could be a new job. So, you know, the, the, uh, the, the person who turns up at a trade show and rocks up 
probably having no, you know, not done as you've done, you know, sent out those invitations, research who's coming, you know, entice that person to set up the appointment and stands on the show and then goes to dinner at night on their own or with their, even worse, with their same group of people that they've always spent time. It's such a waste. It's frustrating. And, and they give trade shows a bad name. So like you, I believe trade shows, you know, are the, that marketplace in the widest sense of the, of, of the, of the word um, for the future. They're, they're absolutely really critical to us. Yeah, it's, as you said, Paul Flack, RIP, he was a, a lovely man. And um, between him and Ray, the, the in, inventing the hosted buyer concept. Ah, yeah, of, the of best, course. Yeah. One of the best things I think that has happened in and around trade shows, rather than you just setting up your store and, like you said, hoping someone will stand by, is paying a little bit more, but knowing that the quality of buyers that are coming to the event and will pre-schedule an appointment with you is one, one of the best, um, you know, developments that I saw in trade shows when I was there, because you, you understood the rationale behind paying a bit more, because you knew the quality of the people that were coming from North America, Europe, wherever it is. Um, and I know that that was something that Ray and Paul jointly developed, I think, back in EIBTM Geneva days. Geneva, yes, when it was in Pal Expo. And, um, you know, and, and when you think about, like, in the incentive business, prior to Pal Expo, there was IT&ME, which was in Chicago, uh, Hub, Hub and Pete Erickson. So, you know, what Ray and Paul did was, you know, they, again, took a good idea, built on it and expanded it. And then in fairness to them, you know, there were some early days, they were pretty ropey in terms of the turn up, turn up, you know, because people look, oh, look at the cost. But as you rightly said, didn't understand the concept that if you work the hosted buyer program properly, then it's a much more cost efficient way of getting out uh, at, um, getting at customers. Uh, Paul, now I'm always saying nice to, nice to, he's a good friend, but he was a Manchester United supporter. So I just wanted to kind of, as a Liverpool supporter, I have to draw a line uh, and just point out the difference. But thank God Ray has got, Ray has got his Brighton, which yes. which uh, are doing really well of late. So uh, there's hope for us all yet. And, and his nephew's the chairman and owner, right? He is, yeah, he is, yeah. And, you know, that's it's a great thing about, and, and in fairness, I and, and Gary, you know this well, you know, I have enormous respect for, you know, um, Ray Bloom, chairman of IMEX, the you know, largest, most successful trade shows in the world. But at the end of, you know, you, you look at the end of the trade show, in, whether it's in Vegas or whether it's in Frankfurt, the man standing at the door who looks like, you know, with all due respect, I say, Ray, I sometimes will come over and give you a few bob because I think you need a few bob and he doesn't need a few bob, but he's there thanking his customers so if you want to learn something about life and green is exactly the same you know very concentrated on you know not arrogant but appreciative of the business and always innovating always trying to see you know how can i make the customer experience better for my customers and it's you know it's a continuous education and, and really motivating to see that but yeah ray standing at the end of the end of the show saying goodbye and and, and thanking people for, for many years, there was um, an event called Trailblazers, and Trailblazers was a number of tourism boards that are joined together and would rotate and would match buyers with suppliers. And I was very fortunate to attend the 2007 one, which was in Dublin and then down to the Ring of Kerry. And obviously, they, they used your good selves as the, the DMC. What was your involvement? With trailblazing, uh, does it still exist today? Because I've, 
when I was in Dubai, I tried to tell the tourism board about it. And in the Far East, I shared it, shared with the Singapore Tourism Board and Thailand Tourism Board, because I thought it was an incredible example of different tourism boards coming together. And they all had a raised profile as a result of the collaboration, if you like. Yeah, and you, you've hit the secret uh, of the Trailblazers and its its predecessors. It, it, it generated when I was in New York and I was, um, you know, obviously representing Ireland. Um, we did make meet as a group of tourist boards, uh, and uh, you know, it's very very obvious in a big market like the United States that and the Royal European, you know, at that stage were European that in order to have any impact, you needed to be consistent obviously you need to have you know good good messaging good communication but you need to be able to get that message out consistently and you never had enough budget so you know it's much better to go collectively and use your collective assets in order to get across the message and that message the original message was come to europe and then you know at least if you're in the consideration set if you were if the client was considering um you know europe then each one of us would have a chance to pitch for our own destinations the other innovation that i think that that um trailblazers the concept the original concept as it is today was was it, it allowed for time not only to have that marketplace so that one-on-one -on -one interaction that sales that you know that moment where you're pitching but it allowed it to take place in a social environment sorry it also allowed a social interaction and networking to take place during and around those direct sales opportunities so it really brought out the destinations themselves and there was a great sense of you know, cooperativeness. So, you know, if somebody has a good time in in um, in Nice or in in Glasgow or in Scotland or or in the UK or in Germany, then they're positive towards Europe. So, you know, that kind of bigger picture thinking that that says, listen, we want customers to feel that experiences and destinations are worth the effort. And then it's up to us individually to show the particular merits of our destination. So it's a, it's, it was a collective thought process, and that's where it came originally. And, and I still think it's really, really valid. You know, collective use, good messaging, but great experiences around the commercial uh, aspect as well. Yeah, well, I, I, I couldn't speak highly enough about it. I was very lucky, but it, it was very difficult for a London hotel to participate. I think you you... We obviously were supported by Visit Britain, but there was always a, a raffle process. So I was lucky the year it went to Ireland and, and then didn't didn't get picked out of the raffle subsequently. But the year I went to meet some incredibly good US uh, incentive buyers who I'd previously met at some of the other shows and the motivation show. And um, yeah, it, it was a great, great way of experience in Dublin and uh, the- Yeah, and you, you got a chance to hang out and you know, our business is, is absolutely about performance and it's about delivery, but it's also in the context of personal relationships. You know, you know, we, we make genuine friends and, and in that relationship, because it's a matter of trust, you know, again, particularly in the incentive, but no different from the association market or from the meetings market. It's your bet. It's somebody's job is on the line. You know, this is not a holiday. This is a business opportunity, whether, as I said, it's an association meeting or, a, or a, a corporate meeting or an incentive. So, you know, you don't want to take risks with people who you don't know. So you need to know their competency. You need to know that you can work with them, that there's a good dynamic. And those type of events give you the chance to kind of, you know, 
allow you to build those strong relationships that are necessary for, for, for a successful event to take place. So business events depend on both elements. Patrick, are you able to tell us a little about the MCI Ovation deal and how the discussions came together? So, um, yeah, Garrett, at a certain stage, the business had grown quite substantially um, um, after many ups and downs, and we were over 60 people. And at that stage, we were like the one-eyed beggar in the land of the blind. We were, we were quite large uh, as a DMC, um, just for a small market like Ireland. So the choice in that stage of a company's development, either get bigger or get smaller. And uh, we decided we would love to get bigger, but how do you get bigger? You try and find somebody that you can partner with or sell to that is going to add rather than you know, getting a bigger DMC. And I was lucky enough to have, as you have in this business, gotten to know some really very smart and intelligent people and built a very strong relationship. And I had one with Roger Tonder from MCI. And in speaking with Roger, um, it was it became obvious that it would be a very good uh, partnership or uh, it turns out that uh, MCI in fact purchased uh, Ovation because Ovation had a very strong brand uh, and a very strong expertise in the world of DMCs. Uh, obviously MCI, a larger company, a more successful company, uh, had strong um, presence in associations and in meetings and in the corporate market and the association market in general. So we were able to mar merge the two companies uh, and we spent seven years with um, MCI and saw the company grow. Uh, we sat on the board and saw the company grow from about 300 to 2000 people. And it was a real privilege and a learning experience because you know, that was a, at a scale that I never had been involved with before. And obviously Roger and, and, and Seb, uh, his son, you know, had a great vision and a great drive. And then on that board were people like Robin Lockerman and uh, Guy Bickwood and, you know, got to know Avinash and a lot of the people now that you, one knows down the years that have been great supporters. Uh, so we were specifically responsible for the rolling out of the Ovation brand and that discipline within the MCI family. Uh, and we had, uh, in fact, at the end of the time together we had over 100 destinations where ovation had a flag so it was a great experience of of creating some of those uh, new companies completely and then creating partnerships in other destinations where uh, we didn't decide to open our own our own business so a great experience but at a certain stage we were committed to stay for five years I actually stayed for seven uh, but decided that you know I'd love to get back more closer to the customers, more closer to a smaller organization, and uh, spent a lot of time traveling around the world and going to board meetings. So I felt the need to get back closer to our customers, and we started Sunua. And you must be exceptionally proud that Ovation was the the brand name, the vehicle that that obviously grew from being extremely well known for Ireland to to then being the name known globally. So. It, using that DMC when I they could have theoretically have selected any European DMC that they'd have wished. Yeah, it, it was it was a you know it was, a, it was as I said you know it was a privilege to work with Roger and Seb and 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 Robin and and the team there and Yuri and Slicer. You know they're very smart people. So you know we were I think there was a meeting of minds. Um, there's a culture within the MCI that allows people to to you know perform uh, at their best so you're given your head you're given your instructions and you're given a lot of engagement so yeah we were delighted to be able to bring that expertise 
into the into the MCI family, and uh, we learned a lot. And I think we also, quite frankly, gave a lot as well. So it was a good combination. Sul Niwa, sorry, how do I? I'm sure I pronounced. You're very good, good man with your good, good, good Celtic tradition. Sul Niwa, yeah. Sul Niwa, you've got about four, five years tenure now, and and described as boutique. If we uh, obviously, COVID has to be mentioned, but post COVID. Your, your focus and your purpose around Solnira will it, again to be focused on incentive and special interest groups coming to Ireland. No, well, Sulnu, it's like, well, Sulnu means, is the Gaelic word, it's, it's, it's a phonetic, anglified phonetic spelling of, of Sul, which is S-U-I-L, a Gaelic word for I, and Nua means new, so Nuai. So the, the pitch for, for Sulnu, um, you know, we, we decided we had, we had done a lot on the delivery side, but, you know, and in, in 35 years of making mistakes, we built up a lot of knowledge of how not to do things. So Sulnu is a great repository of, um, you know, mistakes that can be learned from. So the focus for Sulnu is not so much, you know, bringing in the programs in themselves, but it's more working with destinations and companies in maximizing both from a marketing point of view and also from a destination sales point of view, how they can you know reach various customers and 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 uh, so Sulnu it works you know with destinations and helping them in their marketing, in their training, in their strategy. So we've been doing a lot of, and that will be the focus for going forward. We're doing a lot of kind of st strategy work because you know the great Peter Drucker line, you know, strategy will. Um, strategy. Uh, oh my God, I'm. I've just made a fumble here. Um, um, Culture eats strategy uh, for breakfast. Thank you. Thank you. Again, the story of my life, when I want to say something smart, I can say it. I need somebody else to say it, but that's exactly the point. So, you know, starting off in making sure that you understand what you're trying to achieve, you know, what the strategy is, lovely big word, great from a, from a, from a management speak, but it's as simple as, okay, what's our goal? You know, what, and then what our assets have we got and how we put, can put together put the same together. So I suppose we've been fortunate over life to have worked in you know, the association market, the meetings market and the incentive market and as a supplier and as an end user. So knowing that mix and how you put it together for a specific company to get the best out of a destination and for a destination to attract um, uh, a, a, a business, that's what Sulnu will focus on in the future, yeah. so. But it's a new point of view. Actually, there's a long story about Sunu as well. Because can you imagine when we started Sunu, we had a completely different name. We were sued within four days because we we had used. So yeah, actually, it was a good good start, a typical start of of a Delaney business. Yeah, we were sued and then we were asked to leave our offices, and that was all within the first three weeks. So you know, it's been a it's been an interesting seven years, but we're still here and and. And, and we're growing, which is very good. I'll tell you those stories at another stage. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you, Patrick. So in terms of some quick fire questions, and, and again, thank you so much for your time. It's been, been excellent. And when you think of the world's word successful, who's the first person who comes to mind and why? Oh, Arthur Guinness. Arthur Guinness. Why? Because when you think about Guinness, you know, he started off in 1759 or whatever. So there was hundreds of porter makers, uh, but he had the vision 
to say, hey, listen, I'm going to use the assets I have really well, which is location, fresh Irish water, and a vision to do something a little bit better than everybody else. So absolutely have to mention Guinness here. Great, great success story. Tremendous. Thank you, Patrick. And then question really relates to the, the long-term viability of uh, both business travel and meetings, because there have been some large corporations recently who posted significant savings, um, but, but obviously that, that's a consequence of their executives not traveling and not attending meetings or conferences or, of course, incentives. What, what's your view? Can, can those be cut out permanently or must they return as they were in 2019? Well, I don't think anything must return. I mean, travel, a, a conference, a meeting, an incentive program is only valid if it's actually meeting the goal of that company. So therefore, I think there will definitely be events that should never have taken place. They were just a, 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 a reaction or maybe an ill thought out or we always do something. But I think what's come into relief and which I believe is is which with confidence will mean that we will have face-to-face -face events is the power of those events to achieve real goals. Those goals can be as simple as, you know, that serendipitous meeting where you exchange uh, knowledge, you exchange your network, where you do direct sales, where, you know, on the incentive program, obviously we spoke about it just a few moments ago about that idea of experiencing, um, you know, not just the, 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 um, the, the destination on the surface, but really getting into it. You know, the difference between going, going to a match, going to one of those wonderful rugby matches or soccer matches, whatever it is, a live event and that power of, of that event rather than just watching it on TV, which is brilliant. So in truth, absolutely, I think it's good for us because it's always good to stop back, stand back and, and reconsider, you know, is this event appropriate? What's the purpose of it? And can we can we meet that purpose? Can we do that, that, that event in a sustainable way, obviously, which is something that everybody now is very, very sensitive to. But the power of face to face, the power of that connection, which takes place, the exchange of knowledge, the direct sales, the networking, all of those things, I believe, are enhanced when a meeting is structured in a very intelligent, appropriate, business-like and sustainable way. Thank you, Patrick. That, that's that's wonderful answer. What, what's what's a book that you've given to people as a gift? Oh, actually, recent. I, I love a book. I love a story called Unsung Hero about a man called Tom Crean. I don't know whether you, do you Tom Crean was with Shackleton, and Tom, Tom Crean came from the asshole of nowhere in Kerry. And he was a, just a really strong individual. Shackleton's whole thing about, you know, I don't know where he ever put that famous ad in, in really in the paper, but you know, where he, he asked for people with vision who poor wages, but were willing to go for, 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 for the bigger picture. And Tom Crean was, came from nowhere, joined, you know, obviously from nowhere in, in terms of the, the, you know, the, it wasn't a sophisticated part of the country. And then really, through teamwork and and saved Shackleton and his and and went through enormous amount of of um, suffering and and you know you know when I think about those polar explorers you know who were wearing brogues and and tweeds and going out and Tom Crean was you know he wasn't the captain he wasn't a well known person but he was a if you read Shackleton's story he was a really critical element and I love the fact that he was you know he was committed he never gave up. And, you know, he started off with what seemed to be all of the wrong disadvantages in life, and yet he was successful. So Unsung Hero by Michael Smith. Yeah. 
what are your morning rituals? How do you spend the first 60 minutes of your day typically? Well, first thing, I'm always very grateful that they'd start in the first place. I think it's a very good start in life. So I am very grateful. Yeah, I'm very, I actually, I try to do genuinely, you know, try to say a prayer and say, look, I'm really delighted. Thank you. Thank you, God, for letting me get up today and for being around. So I am, I, I always try and make sure that that's part of my start. And then I, you know, I told you, I, one of the great things America has given me is orange juice. I always have orange juice. You know, so I have to have my, I have to have breakfast. I, I have a full breakfast. So I, really important i'm continuously eating all day but breakfast is a very important part of my day i unfortunately have to because of life i have to kind of sort out my social media and sort out all that kind of bits and then i just triage my emails to see what i dislike most doing and then try and force myself into doing those first and then doing the other stuff so there's a pretty it's a pretty routine element where food is gratefulness food and um, you know, trying to get some shape on the day is is what my typical a typical day is. I'd love to tell you I do twenty press ups and I kind of help help all women across the road, but you know that that comes later in the day. You've been a keynote speaker at many events that I've been uh, fortunate to attend. But if we're looking at outside of the incentive, if you were asked to give a TED talk, what subject would you like to talk or pontificate on? <laughs> well pontificating yeah you sound like my wife now that's uh, and you're not as good looking as she is Gard. I think you know one of the things that I I think I've really come to understand I think I've always known it maybe and maybe it's coming to relief more is community the importance of we have more in common than we have um, disagreements and the whole idea of I really feel very strong about diversity and diversity is 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 something that is is not to be feared it's and and you know clashes of opinion are not to be feared but dialogue is really important so if i was you know if i was if i was capable to give that kind of talk i would love to focus people's attention on what we have that we have more in common than we have uh, than 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 what appears out front and that if you take time to listen as we get to know each other as people i'm always amazed and think oh my god you know that person like you who i thought was awful at the beginning it's actually really a nice person and they're smart. If you could have a giant billboard anywhere, where would you place it and what message would you put on it? Where would I place it? Um, I'd probably place it in a football pitch because I know lots of my lots of people would turn up there. I would I look there's actually three great words uh, which I, I was reading recently from believe it or not, not you know, actually I'll tell you the words please, thank you, and sorry. Right. And I thought, oh, brilliant words, actually. Uh, and the current Pope, uh, yes, Pope Francis, would you believe he was the author of those very wise words? So I thought well, I must have been a famous management person or not. But I mean, when you think about those words, please, what what an incredible, powerful word to use. Sorry when you're feck up, which we do all the time. And thank you for when you get that support that we all get. And I just thought. If I could get a billboard, I would put those words up because I think they, they are a great guiding principle, certainly guiding principle for me, but I think they would probably, you know, they would help a lot of people. Manus make, manners maketh the man or lady. So. Manus maketh the man, yeah, exactly. The biggest compliments I'm going to pay, it's three o'clock and I haven't had my lunch and I genuinely love to have lunch and dinner. So feck you, Gareth, and uh, God forgive you for keeping me away from my lunch. Take care. All the best. See you in person soon.
please God.